Hey, what's up, Ready, Set, Go family? We have a special episode for you today. We're here at the Texas Motor Speedway in Dallas, Texas. Shout out to Fort Worth. Today, we're going to give you not only one guest, we're going to give you multiple guests. You guys know I love speed. We're going to be interviewing race car drivers, sponsors, CEOs, just the inner workings of what race car driving and the sport is all about, all right? So stay tuned. It's coming at you live. have a high-powered, speed, intense episode for you today. Guys are a little faster than me. I know that's kind of crazy to talk about, but we have Nick Sanchez right here, who's one of the up-and-coming racers for NASCAR. So we're going to talk a little bit to him right now, and we might have another guest that's going to drop in a little bit soon. So Nick, tell me a little bit about, about yourself, how you grew up a little bit, where you come from. I heard that you started off loving racing at like two years old. I can't imagine because I have a two-year-old right now and I can't imagine in the backyard zipping back and forward on like on a big wheel or anything like that. Yeah, thank, thanks for having me, first of all. You know, excited to be out here in Texas and, and join the podcast. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 21. I'm originally from Miami, Florida. Uh, and I started racing at 12 years old. So kind of late, but like you touched on, I started liking racing from a young age. Um, you know, my dad was big into collecting cars and, you know, he, he always had me in like, you know, an ATV or a UTV at a young age, you know, riding around the property. And, you know, I always had those little toy cars that I always played with. So, you know, that's kind of what got me into racing. And, you know, that's where I, that's where I got my love of racing from. And it, it, it translated into the real thing. So you're telling me right now, cause my son loves horses that he's going to end up being a, a horse jockey since you love cars at two years old. Okay. All right. So moving forward. You've had the opportunity at a young age where, you know, your mind was so much on racing. You played other sports, right? So what other sports did you play? Um, you know, my mom got me in tackle football when I was seven. And I played that uh, all the way to while I was 12. So uh, for five years, I played tackle football. And I wasn't, as you can see by my, by my stature, I, I'm, not the, I'm not really a football player um, body type. So uh, I've always been into racing. And, you know, I begged, I begged them for probably a year, you know, get me in go-karting not knowing what the hell that was. And they had no idea what that was. And uh, eventually we did some Google searching and uh, found how to get into racing. We'll get back to you. Hold on. Colton, what's up, man? Appreciate you having you on, man. Ready, set, go. Uh, we're talking about basically how both of you have started off as racers. You know, like I want my audience to understand what it takes to be a racer. What's the mindset of a racer? So how did you start off as, as a racer? Yeah, I mean, I, I was rounded at a very young age. Uh, my father was was racing before me in IndyCar. So, um, you know, quite different to right, how Nick got into it. I kind of already knew the, the path and, and how to get there. And um, and and so it was a, a lot more clear. And, and I was around it. And so I knew that's what I wanted to do from a very young age. Um, I did all the normal sports growing up. Um, never really had a passion for them. Always wanted to get back in, in a go-kart. Um, and so I was fortunate enough, I started about when I was six, um, just kind of moved up a little bit bigger and faster stuff. I was 12 when I got into cars and just kind of kept it up until I, uh, I got here. So we're on race cars. We're on go-karts right now, right? So both of you have done go-karts. Nick was telling me that go-kart racing is actually very expensive. It's an expensive sport in a way, right? So you're paying what, 7,000 almost, give or take. 
yeah, you know, at a national level, I mean, you know, it's almost sometimes people don't have a budget. So uh, obviously that stuff spans into big car stuff, um, but it's not cheap. Racing's uh, not a stick and ball sport. So for an Olympian, you know, we're one percenters. You know, we have a lot of athletes who come and want to be Olympians. And usually you take, what, top three in 100 meters, top three in 200 meters and other events as well. So it's a very small number that get a chance to even become Olympian and even small number to become, you know, a world champion or Olympic champion. Like the places that you guys are right now and where you're going, obviously you're, it's a very fine, you know, group of people who are a part of this. Like, what does that make you feel like? I know you guys have been wanting to do this for such a long time in your career now, but now you're living your dream. Like, what does that feel like? We, it's, a, it's amazing. I think you're, you're, what you said is, is being generous. I think Olympians are probably 1% of the 1%. Um, to think about only, only three spots, right? And, and NASCAR, what is it, 43 that start the, start the race? Yeah, 40. Um, we have 27 in IndyCar right now. So... Um, but yeah, it's it's difficult, right? It's it's a thing that, that you have to strive for. You have to work very hard for. Um, and once you get there, it's it's never ending, right? You make it to your first Olympics. Somebody wants to get in on the next Olympics, right? It's the same for us. Somebody always wants your seat. Somebody's always willing to work harder. Um, so you can't just be be happy with the spot that you're in once you get there. You have to keep working and, and try to get better. So essentially, you, you know, we're all Team Gamebridge, right? So we're all teammates, right? So... How has Gamebridge been uh, a pivotal role for you in your career, like helping you move forward and be successful in your career? Um, this is your first year working with Gamebridge, or this is your first year working with Gamebridge? Let the audience know. Yeah, you know, I, uh, you know, I was driving for Rev Racing last year, and we started the year, you know, blank car with Max Eagle in Rev Racing. You know, we had Chevrolet on board, and around July for the race at IRP and in Indy, uh, Gamebridge announced they were partnering with Rev Racing, and that. That relationship spanned and it created this opportunity for myself and Max Siegel and the truck series. So, uh, you know, without Gamebridge, I don't think we'd be racing trucks. Um, so uh, it's because of them that that we're here. And uh, it's been an honor to represent their brand and get to know them better and, you know, showcase what they have to offer to all the fans. Yeah, I mean, it, very, very similar for me. You know, it's it's been incredible, um, you know. In this sport, money makes the world go around, so you need sponsorship. But when you have a sponsor like Gamebridge that you kind of get to know, you know, I, I love being around Dan and Cassidy. They're great people. Um, you know, Dan's a guy that is extremely compassionate and really cares about, um, you know, your feelings and, and whatnot, which you don't get with a, with a lot of people. They want to give you money. They want results. And that's all, that's all they want. But um, so Dan's a very different guy. And, and Gamebridge as a company is, is very different. Um, so it's been incredible working with him for sure. Shout out to Dan and Cassidy. We appreciate you so much for having us. Thank you so much. So for me, racing was an obsession, right? I was always thinking about how I can have a lower angle, come out the blocks, how I can get to max velocity quicker, how can I beat my opponents? Is that something that you think about on a regular? Because you're 21, 22, 23, 23. So at that age, you know, 21, you, you know, you want to go out and party a little bit, have fun. You want to travel the world. What is your mindset like? And do you get time off? You know, like a lot of people want to know because I know that you guys are racing around the country nonstop. And I've been to both of your races before. So what's your mindset and do you ever get a break? Yeah, you know, um, I, I think, you know, the mindset I've always approached with racing, you know, especially getting these opportunities is, is you know, I want to make the most of it and I don't want to leave any stone unturned. So, 
you know, I, I do have time off. I do have weeks to where I'm not going to be at the racetrack, but I just want to immerse myself and, you know, perfect, perfect my craft. And, you know, I think I'm still aspiring to be a high level driver. I don't think I'm there yet. Obviously I'm not in the cup series. So to get there, you have to, you have to be very good. So, um, that means perfecting my skills at a, in the development series, like the truck series and, just you, you're never going to be perfect and even when you win there's still stuff you can work on as a driver and that's the way i try to approach it yeah i i agree you know it's sports always evolving you always need to get better um it's it's incredibly tough to to be in that position where you're just kind of satisfied right you really want something that you fall in love with and have compassionate for and just have a true passion for for what you're doing um we got very lucky, right? We all got into into a sport or into a job that pays you to do what you love to do. So we're very lucky in that sense. Um, but then it, it really kind of puts it in perspective when, when you know you have friends or families that are working normal nine to five, and um, you're like, well, that that could have been me in another life. But I'm very fortunate for for I got I got chosen to be able to do what I love. So I it's it's never that hard to to give up some things you know moving away from home or not being home that often not getting to see your family as much as you'd like to um it's just part of things that kind of come with the job and it, if you love something enough you're willing to to kind of give and take for it speaking of home your father brian harder legend and you had an unorthodox way of coming into the sport do you feel like your father was a, a big influence for you coming into the sport did it feel like pressure also like getting into that car and driving and representing not only yourself, but the legacy that he has put forward for you? And uh, for you, I've heard that you got into sport because you was like, hey, I want to drive. And then your mom was like Googling how to become a race car driver. And now you're here and you're making your way through the ranks. You're our champion, national champion, and you've been the youngest who ever won an uh, uh, Indy series, right? So you both have titles under your belt as well already. So what was it like the moment when you, your mom Googled and said, all right, this is how you do it. Did you pick the phone up? Who did you talk to? What was the next step for you? And for you, what was it like in that process with your father? Did he lead you down that path to be able to where you're at today? Um, I think for me, you know, it was pretty, I don't want to say it was simple in a sense, but, you know, ignorance, I think, is bliss sometimes. And we didn't, you know, we had no idea. We had no expectation in racing or no idea where it would go. We thought it was a hobby. I thought it was a hobby. And yeah, I mean, we Google searched it, found a karting team and called them and booked an arrive and drive as simple as that. And it took off from there. But I think for me, you know, a lot of people, some of their obviously in racing, some of their families have gotten them into racing. And I've seen a lot of that growing up in karting. And I think to me, the cool thing about my story, I guess, you know, both my parents don't come from racing. My dad's never worked on any of my racing vehicles. And sometimes I feel like that that's helped me, right? Because that's allowed me to kind of do my own thing and pave my own path. But uh, at times it was rough when they didn't necessarily know the right answer or any answer per se. But, you know, he was, he was a car guy. He's always been a car guy. So I get that love for speed and love for, you know, mechanics from him. But he knew nothing about racing and still doesn't really know about race cars, which is good, right? Because, you know, he's not going to tell me how to drive or anything. Yeah, it's, it's very, very different to kind of his story. Um, but to kind of go off of that, my dad was very similar when he started racing. His grandparents, or my grandparents, um, you know, were race fans. And somebody down the street was selling a go-kart, and they decided to buy it. And that's kind of how he got started. So he got started very similar, uh, with no knowledge, no idea of what to do, what to buy, what's good, what's not good. Um, and 
for sure it helped me, right? Because it was very clear. Um, he knew what to change on the go-kart, how to make it better, what to get um, right off the bat. So it's, I was very fortunate in that sense, but then there's also an expectation that comes with it. Um, and so, you know, there's always an expectation of being quick or, or whatnot because of what he's done, um, which has been fairly easy to manage. I, I think it's, it's one of the things that I'm kind of oh, pretty good at is, is kind of pushing off pressure and, and, you know, not letting the outside noise or the media um, influence in, in anything. So, but no, it was, it was great. That was some of the most fun that I've ever had in racing was growing up at the, at the go-kart track, going to the go-kart track, my dad, both of us working on the go-kart. Um, it, uh, it was a lot of fun. So shout out once again to your family, both of your families, you know, for being able to support you. There's a lot of athletes out there in all kinds of sports that don't get that support from their family, you know. And I know from my experience that my family was part of my success, you know, a big part of my success. So shout out to both sides of your families as well. Um, I want to say this last thing. We have about five minutes before we wrap up. Last lapper. That's what we're going to work on. Winning. After a win, what's the celebration, right? And what is the craziest story or funniest story that you've seen since you've been in the sport? Uh, I mean, you know, I'm still kind of new to the winning thing, you know. Uh, I'm not someone who really grew up winning a lot. You know, I kind of won more the more I progressed through the sport and the higher... I went up through the ranks, but for me, like winning, you know, I'll try to soak in the moment that night, you know, maybe the next day. And then Monday, I try to just study up for the next race. Um, you know, a lot of people don't like that first day. They're like, you know, enjoy the moment, this and that. But, you know, I want to just keep getting better. And I feel like winning's always motivated me to, you know, put a little more effort in, you know, watch a little more footage, some, uh, something like that. And the funniest story um, I have in racing, I, I'm going to be honest, I, I really couldn't pinpoint a, a singular story that stands out to me. Uh, I haven't really been in the sport uh, long enough, I guess. Um, first race, I finished last. It's a pretty, I guess that's a funny story, right? You know, talking, talking about being humbled initially. Uh, I would say that's the one that, I wouldn't call it funny, but that's, that's the one that stuck with me the most. You know, first race out, dead last in a national event, like dead last. So that's uh, it's always a good first First impression. <laughs> so, you know, luckily I've been in, in IndyCar now. It's my fifth year. So um, I've got some good stories, probably most that I wouldn't want to say on, on air in front of everybody. But uh, um, my favorite story from, from IndyCar, my favorite moment um, would have been my, my win in Long Beach um, in 2021. It's the first race I ever went to. Um, grew up going to that race. Uh, it was actually, I was 14, two weeks old first time I went to that race my father was racing in it um, and obviously I didn't get to see much of the racing I was kind of in the hotel the whole time but um, and and so I got to win there in 2021 my favorite moment was getting to pull in uh, to victory lane my whole team there with just a huge bucket of Coors Light and so we all got to have a beer together right after the race I don't think I've ever really seen anybody do that um and that was that was an awesome moment for me, um, having my first my first win at my home track, um, and and yeah, there's definitely a good night that night. But um, yeah, that's probably maybe not a funny story, but my favorite story. That's a good story. Beers are always going to be good, right? And it's piggyback of you. My first biggest race I had my rookie year, uh, I got second to last. I went to the Prefontaine Classic. I saw my face plastered all over everywhere, all the buildings. 
I was like, oh man, I'm a big deal. Okay. So then I get, I get not focused. I'm unfocused. And I get second to last in the race. And I go over to my sponsors like, hey guys, I'm sorry about that. But later on that same year, I win the Olympic gold. So, you know, there's room for improvement. So, but I want to say thank you both of you guys. I love watching both of you race. You guys are the coolest guys. When I see you guys, I can't even imagine that you are in a sport that's so intense and so high speed. Um, keep that same energy, guys. We love it. And anybody that's out there hasn't really watched racing yet, get into it. If you want to get into it, watch these two guys, all right? Ready, set, go. We out. Hey, Justin Gallon, Olympic gold medalist here. It's kind of loud right here. We're live at the Texas Motor Speedway. It's going crazy right now. We have a special guest with us today, Mr. Not only Mr. Nell Schuyler for Save CEO. We're going to talk to you about where did you come from? How did you get to the point where you are today? And just get a little more passion about how it is to be a CEO, the ups and downs, and the success that you've had. So we're going to start off a little bit, Michael. Thank you for joining us. I, we have an accent, right? We can hear the accent. Where are you from? Uh, I'm originally from Finland, so um, it's been a long journey for me. I've, I've traveled around the world ever since I was 21. Uh, went through, uh, studied in France, in Bordeaux, uh, worked in London, then moved over to New York, and from there moved on to uh, work uh, in Houston and start Save. That's, Houston's a big change from Helsinki to France to all these other places you've been. So what, what made you come to Texas? Uh, we had, a, we had a, a team we wanted to assemble, and most of the guys we needed to, to build the team were in Houston and in Dallas. So we located everybody in, into Houston, and uh, we got everybody together to start the business from there. So give us a little bit of background about what SAVE stands for. What is your, what is your plan? What is your goal going forward? So we, uh, we build, uh, uh, we have a uh, savings program that is uh, effectively uh, uh, protecting your capital, but also giving you upside to the markets, which means that you can get more yield than from any bank account. Uh, and so the plan from here is to work with Gamebridge and launch a new innovative uh, savings account that gives you um, uh, capital protection and more upside from the markets. How's that partnership with Gamebridge been thus far? It's been very good. I mean, we are, we're coupling uh, uh, one of the leaders in the annuity world uh, and their products with our platform. Uh, we are all uh, formerly finance professionals trying to make a difference in consumers' lives. And uh, it's been fantastic. That's a beautiful thing because I know that also SAVE has a humanitarian side as well. So you've done work, be able to like help people with their finances, but also uh, working with more electric cars, making sure that life is easier, not just from a financial side, but a health side as well. Can you speak a little bit on that? Yeah, uh, so we have, uh, we, uh, well, we, we do, we, we have a plan of doing three things very effectively. One is ensuring that you get better returns and better yield potential. So that uh, uh, helps you in your finances and your financial well-being. But then we're looking at uh, other areas. So uh, what, uh, what about uh, society? What about uh, 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 environmental things uh, and, and governance things around uh, helping the community? So uh, in our products and our platform, we integrate a lot of uh, 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 exposure to ESG type of product that gives you potential for uh, participation, participating in those type of assets. And this kind of covers then, then those two key things. And the third one is ultimately trying to um, build a card product as well. 
uh, when the card product then gives, gets into your lifestyle entirely. So now you're spending, and if you're spending on your card, now you could uh, uh, earn more by charging your Tesla, you could get more, earn more by charging your car at Electrify America, etc. So we're going deep into you as a person, but we're touching everything, uh, every part of your, uh, your life, but we're helping you along the way. So SAVE is just trying to change the environment on two folds. Yeah, absolutely. If, uh, I mean, the simplest way to change the environment is, uh, is, to, is to spend as normal, but every time you spend on a card or, or use the products we have, we then invest in environmental causes and, and those kind of things. So it does help the environment. I watched a video from you uh, speaking in 2016. Uh, I think you was doing a partnership with uh, UBS and you was also helping young females in, in India, right? We got be able to get their education. Um, so from a humanitarian side, is that something that you also do? Like you also give back in the communities as well? Yeah, so that was actually a partnership with the UN, uh, and, uh, and that was uh, where we launched a product together with one of their uh, uh, divisions to help uh, uh, children in India. Uh, we have launched a number of those products at, with UBS. I used to work there as well. Uh, and so that's really uh, one of those things that uh, uh, effectively this concept of uh, 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 doing well but doing good at the same time goes throughout our uh, product range. And so if we can integrate that into everything you do, then you can make a difference and you can make a footprint of your spend and your savings that will ultimately change uh, uh, how uh, people, uh, uh, people's lives uh, are impacted and how people ultimately can benefit from ESG type of products. That's beautiful. Can you give us a little backstory on how being a CEO of a successful company, a lot of us, we look at it and say, he has everything made, Everything's going right for him and the company. Can you give us a little up insight on how hard it is to be a successful CEO, the ups and downs that you've gone through, and what's the game plan for a CEO to stay successful? Yeah, it's, uh, it really is a roller coaster. Um, all the things you uh, plan uh, never go as they should. So, so you can expect that uh, the moment you hit a peak, that's, uh, there's, a, there's a valley coming shortly after okay. that one always. Okay. So, so we've had lots of conversations about that with the team. It's a roller coaster. It's crazy. Uh, it's a crazy type of uh, lifestyle because you're constantly working. You're constantly looking at what's uh, what's the best thing, uh, what's the next best thing, and you're constantly fighting fires. Uh, but at the same time, you're doing what you love, and you would know how that how that works out. And hopefully, if you're good at what you do and you're passionate, uh, then you can weather all these storms. Is it tough for you to be able to have people on your team that you really like and you, you think they're a good fit, but then at some point you have to let them go because they might not be a good fit for the team when it comes to the future? Um, you know, is that a stressful situation for you to be able to like create a family, create like a structure, but also have to be able to lay people off in ways? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one because uh, ultimately you have to build a culture where the, the team understands that whatever decision we're making, we're making those decisions for the benefit of the team, not necessarily because of specific individuals or, or, uh, or specific scenarios. So as long as you can build a team that understands the journey, understands the strategy, uh, then you'll, they'll understand those uh, sacrifices you have to make along the way. And sometimes, you, I mean, you're constantly building a team, but sometimes you have to adjust the team, and sometimes you have to let go of people as well. We've been lucky, and uh, we've been kind of doing that pretty well, where we haven't really had to let go of pretty much anyone. 
but you know that's something uh, we know might be coming at some point. But uh, ultimately, it's for, it should be for the good of the team and good for the business. That's good. Building good synergy. You know yeah. what I'm saying? The people you work with, you have on your team, understands what the goal is going forward. Um, I understand that. To be able to be successful in sports, you got to surround yourself with the people who have that same common goal, you know? Um, mentors. I know that as you're a CEO, you've probably, been, you've probably become mentors for a lot of people as well. Who were mentors for you as you were coming into your success and coming into your own? Uh, sorry, who are who? Sorry. Mentors. Oh, I, mentors. Yeah. yeah. Look, mentors are, uh, I've had plenty of those uh, uh, along my, during my career. And I'd say one thing, there's, there's, there's some good mentors, there's some bad mentors. You got to do initial selection between the two as well, because I think talent is unique. And even, even you would know that uh, a coach can only do so much. Sure. Uh, and you have to push, push through yourself. So you got to find the right mentor. Uh, you got to find also, uh, you got to learn from other people's mistakes as well. One of the things I like to say is that you learn as much from looking at people who do bad things around and who th do things wrongly. You keep your eye out, you look at those guys and you, you, you learn from that and you assure you that you do things right and you do things better every single time. So mentors are very, very important, but equally learn from other people's mistakes, learn from uh, how other people are building businesses. Uh, and, and how other people are succeeding. Uh, and that's kind of a good combination though too. So being a CEO, uh, speaking to uh, young future CEOs or entrepreneurs, how do you build something from scratch? Yeah, building something from scratch is difficult because you gotta uh, initially put together a plan that, you know, it contains what I would consider a lot of unknown unknowns. And you're putting together a plan for something that you believe in but nobody else normally does. And you're trying to convince people around you that this is how it's gonna work and this is gonna succeed. So that's step number one. Step number two is executing on it, which is equally difficult. Uh, but uh, ultimately it's about uh, building the right people around it, uh, building the right framework and infrastructures to support those people, and then building the marketing and, and uh, let's call it the sales uh, components around this type of business. Uh, to, to, to ensure success. In the end, it comes down to the people. It it's really is down to the people because the people make the difference. The people make the difference on how customers look at you. Customers look at uh, your passion. They look at uh, how excited you are about the product. That's what they buy. They're not buying the product. They're buying your passion. They're buying your, your enthusiasm. And ultimately, if you get those things right, then that's a good start. But that's no, by no means a guarantee of success. Yeah, yeah. That's a great point. Being a CEO at this point in time, especially for, like I said, a big company and a very successful company, are there times where you're still excited about the, the direction you're going? Because I heard that it was super cool for you to realize that your, your logo, the save name is on a race car going 200 miles per hour. So is that something that was like a checkbox that you like able to like check off and say, hey, man, I'm on a race car. What's next for you? Well, obviously, this is a dream come true being here with yourselves, uh, and so that's one of those high points. I think what happens is you, you go through, build a business, you're going through a lot of pain, you're going through a lot of uh, 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 that, that kind of pain to, to ultimately then enjoy what you've achieved. But, you know, ultimately it's about going, to the, ne going the next mile, building the next thing, uh, ensuring that you don't run out of energy, ensuring that you don't run out of enthusiasm, that you can constantly uh, keep people uh, excited, keep people focusing on the goal. And that's that's for, can be difficult, but uh, ultimately, 
you know, events like these make it all worthwhile. Yeah, very true. How do you balance yourself when it comes to your personal life, being Michael, but also being the leader of SAFE? Like, where do you kind of like compartmentalize and say, I need a little time for myself, but also I need to make sure, because clearly SAFE is your baby. This is what you're growing. So it's also part of your family as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, look, uh, personal time is very hard to, you know, set aside. Um, and uh, you got you to gotta draw a line. And you draw the line saying, you know, from, uh, you know, this particular week or this particular time is reserved for the family and all the things that are important for the family life. And what you get is you're initially going to discard a lot of that. But as you grow, hopefully you buy yourself a little bit more credits and a little bit more time to, to uh, both enjoy the growth of the business and then uh, dedicate more time to the family and, and, and to friends and, and all those things about, I mean, even doing sports and, and, and uh, keeping, uh, keeping yourself healthy. All those things are very, very important. You just have to set time, set time aside for that and ensure that you work hard so that you can, uh, you can effectively deserve to do those things as well. So you said family, home. You're from Helsinki, Finland. I know that we have a lot of uh, countrymen that are out here as, as racers as well. Does that excite you as well to be able to root them on? Absolutely. I, I mean, I've been, uh, I've been watching Formula One since I was small. My dad used to drive Formula Two uh, and, uh, and, and rally. So uh, it's, uh, it's part of the Finnish uh, culture, very ingrained, similar to ice hockey. Uh, and uh, and for, for me, uh, being close to uh, any uh, uh, motorsports events like these really makes my day. So you have a background, obviously, in racing with your father being in Formula 2. So have you got an opportunity to be in, in a race car yet? or I've, uh, I've been in a Formula 2 car. Okay. I have actually driven a Formula 2 car, but that's, that's as far as I've gone. So. <laughs> you live in a fast life. How, how fast did you go? I think it was something like, uh, let's call it 140, 160 miles. This was a lot of junctures and things like that. So, okay, so yeah. I have too. Yeah. I've, been that, I've been that speed before as well. Not on foot, but on, in my car as well. So... But you did it in a safe place. You did it on a racetrack. Not so much me. I did it, I did it out there on a real street. But um, what is the end goal for SAVE? Where, where are we going next with SAVE? And what do you look for in the future? So we launch, uh, uh, we currently have a savings product out there. Uh, we're launching now with uh, GameBridge, uh, a, new, uh, a new product as well. Uh, but ultimately, we want to we're on a mission to change how people save money and uh, without risking their capital. And there's not a lot out there for, for consumers. So you, you're typically, you're choosing a bank account to keep your money safe, or you're choosing an investment to invest. They're never ever combined in a way that you can, you can feel you can benefit from the two. So the key, from, uh, the key path from now is, is to build, uh, build the platform, ensure that we get the right customers in, ensure that we keep those customers happy, uh, and deliver on all our promises. It's a tough market out there. You got rates going up. Uh, you got equity markets being wobbly. Uh, and hopefully we get uh, um, uh, a recovery uh, of the equity markets, which then allows people to uh, participate in that equity market upside. But yes, uh, building new innovative things uh, and, and ultimately uh, delivering something to customers that they've never seen before and never enjoyed before. Uh, and for us, uh, that's what really brings the joy to us. For the audience at home that's watching and listening uh, and want to be with a good company, what's your target audience? What do you look for in a client? Our target audience is typically uh, a slightly more affluent individual or at least somebody who has savings so that they can uh, uh, participate in the program. 
Uh, our average, uh, average customer is 45 years old. Uh, and, but really, our product is for anyone who wants to get, uh, feel that they have uh, FDIC insurance or, or, market sa or safety from market turmoil uh, and have some savings and want to get some more. So uh, really, it's, a, it's an audience of, of, uh, of uh, uh, most Americans, really, uh, including a, a group of people who are uh, perhaps closer to retirement who's saying, well, I, uh, I have a deficit, I, can't, I haven't saved enough, and I, I'm going to be in retirement for a number of years, and I want to enjoy this, this period, so how do I get the most of my money? How, how often do you go back home to uh, Helsinki? Oh, uh, I try to do uh, uh, once a quarter, but it's a bit of a distance. It's a 10-hour flight, so... Uh, I remember that flight. Yeah. 2005 World Championships, I was there. Great. Double gold. Uh, I enjoyed it. People were amazing, had an awesome time. Uh, I hope to get a chance to go back. Great people. I appreciate your time, especially being with us. Uh, anybody that's out there listening and want to be able to be with a great company, Save is a company to be with, okay? Thank you, Michael, for your time. Thank you, Justin. Thank you. Take care. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Olympic gold medalist Justin Gatlin. We're back for another episode of Ready, Set, Go. Today, I, with me, I have Ryan Weatherford. Thank you for coming with us. She's a VP of communications, right? Yep, communications and partnerships. Communications and partnerships with Autosport Andretti. So, can you take us, take us what it goes to, to be that role, right? What is that for you? What is that? You've been in the game for like 15 years, right? Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me. Uh, really happy to chat with you today. Welcome to, to our setup here in Texas. Um, I've been with Andretti Autosport for 15 years uh, and have, have grown into a lot of roles over time. So in my current role, I oversee all of our communications efforts. So anything from media relations, crisis communications, uh, social and digital media, and then as well as our partnership activations team and making sure that, that all of our sponsors have a great time at every race and we're, we're working to hit all of their objectives in the partnership. Okay, so, so you grew into your role so where did you start off at so and i started did you have a background in racing or oh gosh no i um <laughs> i had been to i think one race with a friend um i grew up in indiana but was not a race fan had never been to the indy 500 um knew of the andrettis just because they were such a famous name of course uh, in the sport i kind of lucked into it i had interviewed after college just kind of looking for something to do i was doing pr campaigns and decided to, to transition into something a little different and a little more steady full-time and uh, interviewed with the team, didn't get the job at the time. It was for a completely different role and they filled from within. And then I got a phone call about seven months later, completely out of the blue. I had accepted a position somewhere else. I was moving into a new apartment and JF Thorman, our team president called me and said, we have an opening and need an assistant for Michael and Marco Andretti. We had your resume on file and would you be interested? I said, sure, we'll come in and we'll talk about it. And I, I took that, that role and here I am 15 years later. Uh, doing a lot of different things for the team and have loved every minute of it. Really? Can you take us down a couple of things that you do for the team? Because I know doing the communications, what is that aspect and a partnership as well? Yeah, of course. I um, have done anything from be the day-to-day the -day press officer at the racetrack to where I'm scheduling for the drivers. I'm making sure they're getting to appearances. I'm working with our sponsors uh, to facilitate meet and greets and do garage tours. So you're I, the responsible one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I try to be. I try to be. Uh, every zoo needs a zookeeper, and I, I try to keep everyone on track the best I, got I can. You, got you. <laughs> um, but it's a lot of fun. We meet a lot of people along the way. Um, I've worked with a couple dozen drivers, a lot of the great names in the sport, uh, and some really great brands such as Gainbridge. Awesome. How, so going going into that Gainbridge, 
How long has a partnership that's been with GameBridge and Andretti, how did that even start? It seems like it's a, a blossoming uh, partnership right now. It really is. Uh, GameBridge came into racing as kind of a, a one-off, you know, supporting a young driver for the Indy 500 uh, through one of the other brands in the Group 1001 umbrella. And from there grew into a, a long-standing and full-time um, sponsor with Andretti Autosport, now with Colton Herta. And it's been a handful of years, and it's been really, really special and exciting to see uh, the Group 1001 and Gainbridge brand grow and how together we've been able to maximize on that sponsorship and really just evolve. That's beautiful. So are you more also boots on the ground? I've been to the facility. You've probably been to the facility as well yeah. where, they, where they put the race cars yeah. together and everything. So I was amazed like how everyone is so in tune on what their job is and what the next person next to them is doing, how to be able to construct and put this finely tuned machine together, right? So what do you... It, it takes all parts. It, it really does. It takes all kinds to make our world go round. We have everything in-house. My main office is there in Indianapolis at, at that race shop and headquarters, and then I travel with the teams. But we have um, everything in-house and on staff from accountant, accountants and lawyers to graphics designers, um, vinyl installation, the mechanics that work on the car, painters, engineers, uh, facility managers, and, and parts runners to, to keep us all on track. So it's a, it's a pretty big operation. There's a lot of pieces that make the whole. Well, next time I'm there, I'll make sure I come and knock on your door and come sit in your office for a little come bit. Come on in. <laughs> <laughs> so, like today, can you take us, like, what does it feel like on race day or preparing for race day? Because a lot of people at home or watching, even in the stands, like, they'll never get an understanding of what that feels like. Is it, is it intense or is it kind of like more chill because everything's already done? Hopefully it's more chill. If we've, if we've done our, our roles the, the way that we hope to, it's much more chill. But there's always something behind the scenes that, that you maybe don't see. And we work really hard and we have a great staff of it at Andretti Autosport of executors that um, are able to, to make it look seamless for our guests every weekend. And um, hopefully what, what you see when you come is that it's all chill and you know we're working behind the scenes to make sure that happens. Race day can be um, a big mix of emotions uh, when you're working on the team side of it. It's the, the stress level of having your, your minute by minute schedule for the day and that to-do list of making sure that we get all of our sponsors in the gate, we get the garage tours executed, we make sure the drivers you know, make it to intros and the autograph sessions and have time with the fans. Um, they get through strategy meetings and then the, the the big show, the on-show action on the racetrack, right, just making that sure that like goes well. It, it's a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. can be. So do you feel, obviously, after especially winning a race as well, a big race, yeah. it feels so much accomplishment. Yeah. Um, what's the next step to being consistent and keep winning? Is it just making sure you check up all those boxes? Um, and what's your relationship from working with the staff, also the racers? Because you're 15 years in the game, and that means that, you are a staple, you know what I'm saying? For the company as yeah, well, they rely I, on you to. I, yeah, I am and I, it's been really great. And I think that when it comes to working with drivers and I, you touched on something in consistency and I think consistency is really key for what we do um, and planning for the future and, and planning for what's next and every day and, and just staying really diligent to, to our process and our way um, and our people. We've got great people and that's what it really takes. Yeah, yeah. And you know, do you get a chance and opportunity? Because you said that you've talked to a lot of the racers throughout the years. Yeah. Um, what's racers' personalities like? Because, you know, when we <laughs> when we see them, obviously they're in the car. Yeah. But after the win, they're doing donuts. They're doing all kind of crazy stuff. But also I've met Colton and a couple other drivers, and they seem like just chill and real cool, just young guys just trying to live a fast life. Yeah. Right? 
there, uh, there's, there's a great difference in the different mindsets of, of different athletes. And, and you've lived this too, right? Like, you know what it's like heading into that stressful day and that, that situation. And I, I remember one of the drivers that I worked with uh, pretty early on in my career. It was pole day at the Indy 500. Uh, one of the most stressful days that a driver will go through. Yeah. And one of the most important days of their year. And he looked at me. It was, it was really early in the morning. He had, had just gotten up and we were getting things around for the day. And he looked at me and he said, I might not be very nice today don't take anything I say personal. It's just a really stressful day. That's me, Ryan. <laughs> yeah. That's me. That's me. On day on game day, I am a different person. Uh, yeah. But the people around me understand they know Absolutely. that. Absolutely. You know? so. And I think that was one of the best lessons that he maybe could have taught me because I, I was so new in it that I don't know that I would have seen it that way. And it's really important to be able to, to kind of remove that and understand that like this is an athlete. They're at the top of their game and they're in their element. Uh, and I am just a piece helping to facilitate that. And yeah. And I'm an outlet for them too, right? They, they grow really comfortable with you. I'm sure you had people in your career that, that you became comfortable with and you knew that you could go to them in that stressful moment and they wouldn't take it personal and they could be that resource for you to just Absolutely. express what you needed to. Absolutely. I mean, you got to realize from, from an athlete's standpoint, we know all that you have done and sacrificed to make this happen for us. Absolutely. But all that pressure is now on us. Correct. And for me, it's only it was only nine seconds. <laughs> These guys get at least two hours in to be able yeah. to make sure that they bring success back home for yeah. the team. Yeah, I think about the Indy 500, you know, 500 miles of being strapped in with all that weight on your shoulders. That's amazing. I don't think I can go 500 miles. And not <laughs> I stop know there. I couldn't. <laughs> uh, I find that very amazing. Yeah. So where has been, where have you been that has been uh, uh, new for you, exciting? You know, you've been, you've probably been everywhere when it comes to Indy and when it comes to the circuit, but yeah. is there any place that has been like breathtaking, awe, any great stories? I think beyond beyond our IndyCar program, Andretti Autosport operates in seven championships worldwide, uh, including Formula E, Extreme E. Uh, we have a team down in Australia. We used to run in a series that was called A1GP. And, and through all of those other racing avenues and, and adventures that we do, I've been able to go some great places. Um, Australia? I've, yeah, I've been to Australia. I went with the race team to Malaysia, Morocco, Marrakesh. Um, so some really, really great opportunity outside of, of what you would normally think of. Oh, you beat me to Australia. Yeah, How we got to get you down there. It was yeah. great. It was great. You should head down. The Bathurst 1000 is one of the, the big iconic races down there that, that we love every year. It's in yeah. October. You should, you should come down. I'm going to join the team. I'll carry your bags. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> so earlier you were talking, before you sat down, you were speaking on the fact of, um, you know, you get to make sure that one of the drivers were getting to medical. Yeah. So what is that like? I mean, for me, when athlete in my, in my sport, we go to medical, it's a hamstring pull sure. or a strain. But obviously we understand that these racers are going 200 plus miles per hour and medical could be something that can be very serious. Yeah. Um, is that something that you, you have to deal with? And It is. So I'm, as the lead of our communications, I'm the lead of our, our crisis team uh, and our crisis comms. What we do is inherently dangerous uh, and, and there can be risks involved. Today it was nothing major. It was just a little case of dehydration. We're just gonna go in and you know get, get hydrated and get a little bit in IV. But uh, it, it can be the, the opposite extreme. I've, I've been with the team for a long time, and, and with that in my role, unfortunately, I, I have had to execute our, our crisis communications plans in the worst-case scenario with the driver fatality. And it's, it's not somewhere we ever hope to be, yeah. um, obviously, but something that we, we make sure we put the planning on the front end to, to get through it should that day ever come. Yeah. And we hope that never happens Absolutely. in the near future or in the far future yeah. at all. It's, it's a part of my job I'd be happy to never do again. Got you. <laughs> yeah. I got you. Um, so it seems like you have, a, you take on a lot of responsibilities, a lot of roles. Do you get time for yourself? Do, do you get, so you traveling around the world and doing all these checking the boxes, 
keeping the zoo in order. <laughs> yeah. What does Ryan do to kind of just relax and let go? It's funny thing is my my husband actually works for the race team as well. Oh, you're <laughs> so, you're in it. We are in it. You're you're living in it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely not a job. It's a way of life. Okay. Um, we we met working in racing. Uh, he comes to all the IndyCar races, so we travel together. We have a two year old son at home, so we're we're kind of in a new phase of life of trying to understand how we balance it and, and be here, but also spend that time and attention I have a two-year-old as well. Yeah. Is your two-year-old into, into racing? Or he is, is obsessed with cars. He comes by I wonder why. <laughs> I can't figure I it out. I wonder why. Vroom vrooms are his favorite thing. <laughs> so you probably be stuck in the game even longer now because <laughs> if, if your be. child grows up and goes into the, into the sport, then... Uh, I don't know. I might I might buy him golf clubs or set him up with a with a running coach, maybe. <laughs> You're going to sway him away, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> He'll be set at least... You know how to be able to take care of him in the sport. Very true. We definitely will know how to kind of navigate navigate the path. So early in the early in the sport, were were there a lot of females in your position, or what did it look like early in the sport, and what is it like now for for females in your position, or even in the sport period? Yeah, I think there's been a great evolution of women in motorsport. Um, specifically within Andretti, we have five female vice presidents. Wow. We have three women drivers. Uh, we have women represented on our engineering team, within our mechanics and our pit crews working on the cars. It's a really supportive community. And I, I think what, what may not be as visible is series-wide within the IndyCar community and motorsport in general, there's an amazing network of strong women that are always willing to help each other out and have, have worked alongside men for many years, um, helping to, to keep the wheels turning. Yeah. Shout out to all the women in the sport, Absolutely. all the women in Andretti Sport as well. We appreciate you very much. Absolutely. So what's the next stop for you? Where are you going next? Well, from here, uh, we're at Texas Motor Speedway this weekend. From here, in two weeks' time, we'll be in Long Beach for the Grand Prix out there. It's a great race, over 40 years of history, maybe even nearing 50, maybe. Wow. It's an wow. impressive event. So, I mean, when, when you're in season, are you even at home much? Because usually when I'm in season, you know, I'm not, I may be at home for like two weeks and then I'm out again. You know. Yeah, we, we definitely see our, our coworkers and our drivers, you know, more than we see our families sometimes, um, especially when we get into those summer stretches of four races in a row. Uh, I'm lucky enough that I now have a great team under me that gets to do a lot of the heavy lifting and be the boots on the ground. So I, I come in and support at the big events and, and take my turn where I need to. But fortunate that this year I'll be a little home a little more and not on the road for every single race. Got you, got you. So what direction is uh, Andretti trying to go? Is there a new direction Andretti's trying to go at, at this point or in the future? I, Anywhere and everywhere. Uh, we, uh, win, my, win, win. Win, win, win. Win, win, we, win. Uh, we're really working to grow and, and globally and, and really diversify our portfolio of racing teams. Um, Michael is a racer at heart and wants to be in, in every championship and represented in every series worldwide that, that is worth being in. And that's where we're going to set our goals. And that's, that's what we're going to work to do. I, I had encountered uh, Michael and uh, Mario at, at one point when I came to Indy, right? And um, I got a chance to go up, get up at seven o'clock in the morning <laughs> and get in the two seater riders. Ooh. And I had the honor of Mario driving me. Isn't it amazing? It was an amazing experience. After I got out of that car, I was hooked. I was hooked. So I appreciate the Andretti's. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for the success that you've had throughout the years and the success you can have in the future. I can hear that the, the races are off and well. So Ryan, thank you so much for your time. I know you got to get in there and make sure all the boxes are checked off. <laughs> yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for coming out. Thank you very much. And that's another episode of Ready, Set, Go. We out. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Justin Gatlin here for another episode of Ready, Set, Go. We have a special guest. We're here live at the Motor Speedway in Texas right now. 
We have some good guests coming up. You can hear the race cars live in the background right now, getting ready for their competition. But right now, we're going to focus on our guest, Jason Hamilton. He's made sure. his way up, man. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, sir. How are you? Doing good, man. Doing good. Tell us a little bit. Let's get into it because I know you got to get ready to call one of these uh, races that's coming up right now. Um, tell us a little bit about your, about your background. Absolutely. Well, first off, appreciate you guys having me. We're at a combination event weekend right now between the NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series and the IndyCar Series here at Texas. So um, really cool weekend for us. Crossover between two different forms of motorsports, but we're all one big family. Uh, and that's certainly how I grew up. Uh, when it comes to uh, racing. Um, right now, I'm the managing director of competition operations for NASCAR. So as a part of that, I am a race director. So I'm up in the tower making the calls as an official, whether it's penalizing vehicles, determining when the track is ready to go back to racing. Overall, making sure the facility is where it needs to be for us to put on an effective show competition-wise. Uh, that's my primary responsibility on race weekend. Uh, another big part of that is the Drive for Diversity program. Uh, overseeing the competition aspects of that program, finding minority youth drivers, bringing them up through the ranks, and hopefully one day seeing them race at our highest levels in NASCAR. Uh, it's something very close to my heart, uh, something I'm very passionate about, uh, and it's something that I'm is very rewarding as far as my job goes. Well, I want to give you your flowers because it's well-deserved. So the audience at home knows that he's made history. He's the first African-American that has also called races for the Indy 500 as well, right? For the Daytona 500, yes. Daytona, Daytona yes, sir, 500. For the, for the Daytona 500. So I've been a uh, race director now uh, since 2016. Um, called probably between 20 to 30 cup races throughout the year. Um, also called truck and Xfinity Series races for NASCAR. Uh, but yes, it's a great, tremendous honor. My biggest thing is to be able to come into the sport and be able to make a positive impact. Uh, hopefully set a positive example for others who have an interest in motorsports as a, as a kid like I did um, and show that it's possible. So I uh, appreciate you saying that. So any relation to Lewis, Lewis Hamilton? No relation to Lewis Hamilton, <laughs> but, I, but I am a fan of Lewis Hamilton. Like I said, I'm a fan of motorsports in general. What he's been able to accomplish in F1, I hope he continues to win races. And, and just he's broken down so many barriers in motorsports. Guys like him, guys like James, Bubba Stewart, and motocross. Um, guys I looked up to um, as, a, as a young racer myself. So uh, no relation, though. So you're speaking with so much passion about motorsports. So is this something that you grew up doing? Were you, were you also a driver or were you really close to the? Because I know that this sport is very culture, you know, so you have to kind of grow up in the sport, love it. And a lot of these people who are even working on the cars have some kind of history in the sport. Well, I can't say I have a family history in the sport like many do. You know, you hear names like Andretti. In, uh, in IndyCar, you hear names like Petty in, in NASCAR or Earnhardt in NASCAR. Um, I don't have a family history per se, but I, as a kid, I developed a very strong passion for it. Um, I was lucky enough that my grandfather took me to a racetrack uh, very, very early as a four-year-old in upstate New York, uh, and I just fell in love with it. We started racing after that. Uh, we started racing as a seven-year-old and just continued to work my way up the ranks as far as we could. Really just had fun with it, didn't know where it could go. I was welcomed every step of the way. Um, and really that passion carried with me right up until I started working here and still have that same passion today. That's amazing because I couldn't even, at four years old, I didn't know what I wanted to be in life, or what I even liked in life. So that's, that's a really dope situation that you had brought yourself in to be able to get to where you are today. So kind of tell everybody exactly what you do, like calling a race because a lot of people know that you have the headsets on and you're looking at the track, but what... How important is it to be a caller of a race? 
Yeah, so as the race director in NASCAR, you have a number of different aspects that are under your control. I won't go too far into the weeds, but from a big picture standpoint, essentially you are the head referee and you're also the head safety director all at the same time. So I'm responsible for making the calls when it comes to when the caution comes out. People you know, know that most because that's a stoppage in the race or a change in the race momentum, right? So that, you know, that's a big decision, but it's also tied to safety at the same time, safety of the competitor, safety of workers to go out and recover the racetrack, which I'm directing on the track to do that at the same time that we're going through our procedures, whether that's opening pit road, determining uh, when the caution car can come out on the track, uh, penalizing vehicles, setting the scoring lineup, all that falls in the purview as a, as a race director, along with facility prep. So to be able to make all those calls, we have to have officiating lines in place. The safety aspects have to be set up properly. So going into the race weekend, there's a lot of prep that starts months in advance for each race weekend. Uh, 38 races in, in the season for the Cup Series, each venue has its own unique challenges. So it's a, it's a grind, but a very fun job and something that someone grew up in racing um, is you know, really uh, nothing more impactful. So basically you're telling me you're, you're the air traffic controller of NASCAR. Air traffic control is a very <laughs> realistic comparison. We're up in the, the tower at most facilities, um, making those calls, seeing the big picture and directing everyone on the ground to keep everyone moving forward for the event. So there you have it, people. If you are watching any races in NASCAR, especially the truck series, and how it's going and how it's operating, how it's flowing, white flags, yellow flags, this guy right here is giving the call for everything that's happening on the track. So you told me a little bit about your background. You loved racing in motorsport, but you also told me you used to be a, a runner racer as well. <laughs> Give me a little bit of background on your track, track background. So I, I will say motorsports was my number one sport growing up, um, but I also ran track and field. I actually followed you as an Olympian, as someone who I, ah. who I idolized, you know, that was, that was doing big things, um, running times that I aspired to be able to run and um, have had the form and technique that I wanted to pick up on. I remember the coaches saying, you know, come out of the blocks, you know, watch Justin Gatlin, now he comes out of the blocks. So, <laughs> so we would, um, you know, that was something that was very, uh, you know, a sport that was very important to me as well. Um, growing up, I did it throughout high school and throughout college and really learned a lot of lessons that I can still move forward today as I did with racing. Um, kind of tying it back to racing, having that progression as a kid growing up, uh, whether it was in football or running as a track athlete, the great thing about my position now, um, I mentioned things coming full circle. So as a racer, I applied to what we have at, now known as the Drive for Diversity program with NASCAR, where we're partnered up with Max Siegel, who's ironically the CEO of, uh, USA, of USA Track, track and Field. Yeah. Um, he is our, our partner, our team owner, that's responsible for executing our Drive for Diversity program. So a lot of the learnings that I took from other sports as far as progression development, uh, luckily now I'm able to work with Max through our Drive for Diversity program and have a structure in place that's similar to other sports with development for our young, diverse racers coming in that aspire to race at the Cup Series one day. So I also know that your way and you're making your way through this sport and you're rising up. You've also had encounters some runners, well, some racers along the way, like Nick Sanchez, who started off very early in his career. Like, I think like 14, you knew Nick, right? Yeah, so going back to what I just mentioned, um, you know, when I applied to the Drive for Diversity program back in 2004, there wasn't really a structure. It was either you had raced before and you had a solid knowledge base of racing and you could get in, 
or or you didn't, and there was just there was no in between. I I come from a unique unique area at that time in upstate New York, where I was racing primarily on on dirt tracks. So the the connection wasn't really there. Um, as we have developed with the program and worked with Max, we now have a pipeline in place where a kid that comes from a non-traditional background, a non-Southeast background, can start developing as a as young as a 12-year-old. We have a, a young kid named uh, Nathan Lyons that's running uh, Legend Cars for us right now in the program. He's 12 years old. Uh, he's originally from Texas, actually. Um, has moved to North Carolina, but is starting to work his way up in what's known as the Legend Car. Nick Sanchez, on the other end of the program, is racing here this weekend in the Craftsman Truck Series. Actually just sat on the pole today. He started out as a go-kart racer, a lot like I did. Um, we were able to pick him up at a young age, have him start racing Legend Cars, and he's progressed through every level of that program. It's a true ladder system from Legend Cars to late models, ARCA program, and now up to the National Series of NASCAR racing the, in the Craftsman Truck Series with the goal of one day him racing on Sunday in the Cup Series. So did you take a liking to Nick because you guys had similar backgrounds? Like, he didn't have anybody in his life who actually was had a background in racing. Like, he just said one day, like, Mom, I just want to race. And she Googled how to become a race car driver, and the rest is history so far. Well, those are the kind of kids that we want to reach. You know, it, it's... It's diverse youth, obviously, is a is a very important part of that because, you know, you growing up in a non-traditional background for what you mentioned with racing, not having one of those uh, name brands that you associate with a long history, you also don't necessarily have the knowledge base to know, all right, I need to progress to this level at this age. I need to learn this by this level before I move forward. So we provide the tools through Rev Racing uh, in our partnership with Max Siegel uh, to help those drivers develop, uh, both on the track and off the track. You know, great partners like GameBridge are also a big component of a driver moving forward. So you can have the skill on the track, but you also have to have the off-track attributes to attract sponsors to be able to move forward and have that investment because racing is expensive. But those tools allow drivers to grow in our sport. So that's that's the biggest part of the program. That's and Nick has the tools to to make to make his career move forward. So that's that's our biggest connection to him. We have a combine where we evaluate drivers, much like you have a, an NFL combine or, you know, you have tryouts for the U.S. Olympic team. We have a combine where we're evaluating drivers to select drivers that have those tools, have that passion uh, to move forward and do the work both on and off the track. So what's what's a combine like for racers? Because a lot of people, I didn't know that there was a combine for actually for racers. Well, there's a there's a big fitness component to racing, so don't let anyone tell you otherwise. It's, it's not easy. You look at... Uh, Circuit of the Americas last week and some of the uh, Formula One drivers that ran like Jensen Button and Kimi Raikkonen, how much of a fitness workout, especially racing a 3,500 pound stock car is around a racetrack. So at the combine, we're evaluating fitness, we're, we're evaluating driving skill. We'll use go-karts to evaluate the basics of driving skill, driving prowess and feedback. And then we will also use a late model stock car to evaluate the higher level of handling a heavy race car giving feedback, making improvements each run. And then in the end of the day, lap times matter. Uh, your communication to the crew matters. Um, and then your off the track marketing presentation matters. We'll run the drivers through mock press conferences, um, mock meetings with sponsors. And that gives us a lot of the data to both select the drivers, but then also help them develop and grow. Because at the end of the day, that's that's the biggest part, reaching so new people and helping them grow. You're creating a package. Absolutely. So you're trying to test out the package and see if they fit the mold exactly to be the race Absolutely. car driver in NASCAR as well. Absolutely. Okay. So is it an annual combine like you would find in football? 
it is an annual combine. Um, normally happens in the fall. Um, you know, we'll bring in anywhere between uh, 10 to 15 drivers to evaluate them at once. There's over 90 drivers that apply. So our, our numbers continue to, to grow. And that's, that's also a positive thing because the drivers that may not advance and make it all up to the Cup Series, we still want to stay in contact with them. We still want them to be racing at the local short tracks, racing at other levels of, of motorsports, or like myself, follow a business career in the sport and be able to contribute in other ways. So you have a, you have a skill set and you have mental toughness from football, track and field to race car. So what would you give advice to young racers who are trying to get into the sport? Because I find that speaking to Nick and speaking to Colton, like they seem like they're just like so cool and just laid back and chill. But let's be honest, like being a driver in a race car, you're driving 200 plus miles per hour. You're this far away from the wall. You yes. have so many other racers around you. It's like almost like chaos. Yes. Well, I would encourage any young racer to follow their passion, just like with any sport. Follow your passion. You never know where opportunities will lead. You know, Nick followed one model to get here. Um, I'll, I'll mention another young racer who came through the same development program, racing for Rev Racing last year, uh, Raja Karuth. I encourage everyone to go look him up. Um, he comes from Washington, D.C., uh, again, an area that you normally wouldn't associate with stock car racing. Uh, he's African-American. Both his parents, you know, are uh, professors at, at Howard University. So. No, no racing background, but he developed a passion at a, for an early age or at an early age of racing, just like Nick did, just like I did, um, found his way through sim racing on iRacing, uh, made the connections. We actually found him racing on iRacing through a youth series we put together on there to reach kids that don't have access to a, a traditional racetrack, um, came to the same combine that Nick did, started off legend cars, and he's advanced his way up to racing the truck series as well. So I say that because if you're willing to to put the work in, you have the passion for it, you're going to enjoy it, right? Yeah. If, if, you, if you have a passion for it, it's something that you're going to have fun doing. So uh, follow that passion, uh, use that motivation to, to be a go-getter and make connections and you, you never know where they're going to lead. Yeah. I mean, talking to Nick, he seems so passionate, but also obsessed with just competing, racing in general. So it seemed like he is a good fit for him. And I, and I know Raj as well. Shout Absolutely. out to Nick. Shout out to Raj. You keep doing your things, guys. So um, if there's young guys out there who didn't even know that they had a passion for being a racer, where could they go to be able to like sign up or either kind of learn more about racing and see if that fits them? Well, you know, YouTube for, for kids now is a, is a huge resource. And there's so much with NASCAR now. If you just search NASCAR on YouTube, you can go back and watch historic races. I, I was so impressed when I first met Raja, for example, how much of the history of the sport that he knew. And it was really just from, from YouTube you know, you know, following old races, knowing who all the ra old races were. NASCAR is a very unique story of how it grew to what it is today. Um, and learning that story of, of, okay, how did racing progress from the beaches of Daytona Beach to the super speedway, the two and a half mile race where the 500 takes place these days. So um, I'd encourage them to do that. Also, you know, there's so many avenues and, and so many racetracks around the country. Many people don't realize that we race, uh, we have two different racetracks we race at in uh, California. We have races in Phoenix on the East Coast. You know, I mentioned upstate New York. I went to see a race at Watkins Glen as a, as a five and six year old, uh, Watkins Glen, New York. Um, and you, you know, most people don't realize that there's racetracks spread all across the country. So I'd encourage them, uh, young kids, to take a look at racetracks that are out there. Let their parents know, hey, I'd like to go experience this. And I guarantee you'll have a, a welcoming experience um, and hopefully a fun experience. There's something for everyone at the racetrack. I appreciate you, man. Appreciate your time. You know, everyone, go check out my man right here, Mr. Hamilton. 
He's made his way up through the ranks. He's over at NASCAR. If there's something that you're interested in doing as well, check him out, man. So you having a long history of being an athlete from three different sports. Yep. Like, um, was there, a, was there a, a big transition from going from being the athlete or actually metaphorically the guy in the driver's seat to now overseeing so many other drivers? Well, so I'll start here with that question. So there's there's so much to being an athlete that you can take and move forward with in life. You know, you hear your coaches say that growing up, you know, you talk about teamwork, you talk about work ethic, but in the end, it really does translate. You may not realize it at that time, but that work ethic, that mentality that an athlete has applies in so many ways. You know, for me as a race car driver, when you're growing up doing that and you're, you're running your race team, you're working with your family, you're traveling each week, uh, you're trying to put your best foot forward every week. Um, it's really like being a, a quarterback in football. You know, I also played football. There's a big comparison there where you have to see the big picture. You have to know what everyone else's role is, just like you have to know what every component is on the car as a race car driver growing up. So uh, it teaches you to pay attention to detail and how that translates to winning. You know, so, for example, when I have a very challenging race, uh, like last week, we raced at Circuit of the Americas. Um, a lot went on in that race. There's a lot that I have to manage as far as procedures, track cleanup, uh, the multiple overtime attempts. Um, and we, we're always under the gun when it comes to uh, TV windows and making sure we hit those, making sure we deliver for the fans. So when I have races like that and I come away in the end, it's a lot like winning. You know, I don't I don't have a, a trophy in the end to show for it or, or a prize in the end like it's you the do. Pride. It's, it's the pride that yeah. comes with it. And as any athlete, I believe, can relate to that pride, especially when you put the work in that preparation and that pride that comes with fulfilling what you work towards. That, that same feeling translates to the business world. That's a cool thing. So could you ever take us back to the point where being a guy who calls a race, you remember that first race you called? Were you nervous? Were you excited? What did it feel like? <laughs> a lot of people will ask me if I'm nervous when I call races. And, and the, I, the answer is, short answer is no, but the, there's a reason for that. I, I would say the, as long as I feel like I've done everything I can to prepare, I know that just like when I go into uh, a track and field event as a, as a high school or a college athlete or go into a football game, there's going to be things that happen that are completely out of my control, especially when you're working as a team. And, and really, it's a team of officials there's, that are around me, whether it's in the tower or on the ground, uh, not to mention all the variables of all the competitors. So as long as I put in the time to prepare, I've, I've studied the facility. I, I, you know, I've studied past races. I know the rule book. I know how to implement rules uh, in different situations and make those interpretations. As long as I've done that, the nerves are not there. So when you step up into the booth, you know pretty much everything. You know every racer. You know everything that they've done in the last couple of races, what it looks like, how it could unfold. So you... I've done my preparation. I've gone through all those progressions. And also, you know, yeah. for me as a kid, all those years racing, uh, spending time with family, really enjoying it, um, having fun going to the racetrack each week, all that still translates to today too. I also followed the sport as a kid. I was, I followed all motorsports really at an early age and really fell in love with NASCAR specifically uh, right around 2001. So I've, I've watched the sport, um, you know, for over 15 years now. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it, and really followed every race. So having that database of knowledge to pull from, having that understanding of the sport, you know, a lot of people think, you know, you're, you're growing up and you're, you're doing a sport, but when you can work in it and then apply that knowledge each week, um, that a lot of things, a lot of that takes care of itself. And it's, it's, it's a knowledge base that uh, I'm very thankful for. What is, uh, 
the craziest things that you've seen in your job, in your position, and also anything funny? Oh, the craziest. There's a, there's a lot of things that happen on a, a weekly basis um, that uh, you wouldn't expect. You know, um, I can't, it's hard for me to single out one thing. There's so many big moments in NASCAR. That's, that's the thing. I, you know, I could even point to when I'm prior to the 2500, there's over 10,000 people on the, the ball field prior to the race. They're excited to be there. You know, they're enjoying a pre-race concert. They're getting to meet the drivers. Cars are on the grid. Just that feeling of energy before those marquee events. It's a crazy feeling. It's a crazy energy, but you can't match that. You know, our facilities are huge. So the Tona 500, for example, there's well over 100,000 people there. So that energy and that excitement, that's among some of the craziest stuff that I've seen at a racetrack. So you're telling me for, for the, the visual aspect for the, for the people at home watching, the stands are full of 100,000 people. Right. That's an Olympic. That's an Olympic sized stadium right there. Yes. And you have 10,000 infield, not to mention anybody else that's outside tailgating as well. Absolutely. And you're calling the races. I don't I'm not looking at it in that perspective, but just <laughs> just the energy of it. That's in the, the fandom that comes with motorsports. You yeah. know, it, that's 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 what stands out to me. Okay. okay. So what is it? What is the end game for you? For Jason Hamilton, what do you see next for you in the next couple of years? Where are you going to go? For me personally, I don't think anything uh, endgame-wise has, has changed. You know, working with the Driver Diversity Program, I, I mentioned how big an impact being in the tower is, but working with Max Siegel, Rev Racing, you know, now being able to bring drivers in and attract the partnerships like with GameBridge and see them move forward, there's nothing more rewarding that I've, I've done than to see that. So, uh, and I see that as contributing to the sport in a positive way. So. That was my, my goal when I first came into was to contribute to a sport that I grew up enjoying in a positive way. And that's still the, the same goal today. So whatever pathway that leads me on, uh, whoever that leads to me working with, you know, that's that's still the same goal. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate your time, man. Absolutely. Definitely so much. Thank you. I want to thank Rev Racing. I want to thank Gamebridge. I want to thank Mr. Hamilton right here. We had another great episode. Ready, set, go. Tune in. We're going to have another one coming to you soon.